Welcome to Generous Impact. This is Brett Brummett. And I'm Amanda Brummett. We are joined today by our friend Steve Reese of Water is Basic and a special co-host, our youngest daughter, Madison. She joined us on a trip to South Sudan last year where she got to see the impact firsthand. In this episode, you'll hear how Water is Basic is bringing clean water to the people of South Sudan and Democratic Republic of the Congo while changing the lives of women for generations to come. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. And while the three of us are lucky enough to know you super well, most of our guests probably don't know you yet. So tell us about who you are, both personally and professionally. (laughs) Who am I? You know, I turned 60 in a few weeks, so you don't know who you are when you're 60. You're starting to figure out who you are. But (laughs) I born in Idaho, grew up in upstate New York, wound up in Texas, never thought I'd ever live there and have spent the last 30 something years in Dallas and now Austin, married. We're 30, we'll be 36 years this month, and three kids in their 30s. We like to say about them, if they weren't our kids, we'd still like them, and we'd like to hang out with them. That's, that's I, I who agree. I am. Having I, met them, I totally agree. They're good people. They're intense, but they're good people. We like to hike, play pickleball, get outside, and travel, of which I did way too much last year, so we're trying to fix that. Nice. And then what about the professional piece? Well, professionally... I am the president and founder of an organization called Water is Basic and have been working in South Sudan through the organization Water is Basic for almost 20 years. So uh, first was in what was Sudan at the time and has become the newest nation on earth, South Sudan. First there in 2004. So this, this will be my 20th year, the more I think about it. We are focused on providing clean water to everyone in South Sudan, which is a priority they have because it is a very broken country and we raise awareness about South Sudan and funding for them to do what we call fix the problem themselves. And we will definitely get more into the details on Water is Basic here in just a second. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Madison, can you introduce yourself to our guest and let him know how you know this guy and Water is Basic? Yes. So I'm Madison. And as previously stated, I'm Brett and Amanda's daughter. I got the opportunity to meet Steve last year on a trip to South Sudan and first was introduced to Waters Basic when I was really young, probably like four. I ran a 5K for them, but I was fully submersed in the impact of the foundation upon landing in South Sudan and really just getting to hear how other people viewed Waters Basic and what all they provided and how far their impact reached. Awesome. Did you say you, you ran a 5K at age four? Yes. For Water is Basic. Yes. I think that's my earliest documented interaction with Water is Basic, which the, it was birthed out of a, a church that we all four attended back then. Sure. Yeah. I just want to say I met Madison, I thought for the first time, but I must have met you at that 5K, but I didn't realize it in South Sudan and she became one of my favorite people. And now that I know you run 5Ks at four, and now you're running marathons, I guess, at this age, you're really my favorite person. I think I stopped the running at age four. but That was wise. <laughs> well, as we get into water as a basic, can you take us back and tell us what you first experienced that led you to start even thinking about being a part of the solution for the need? Thanks, Brett. You know, it's funny, we, we have a film that we show, it's called Rue, it's about 15 minutes long, and it's the one day in the life of a 12-year-old girl pursuing water. 
And we often show it at schools. And what middle schoolers and high schoolers always want to ask me is, how do you get to do what you do? You know, like it's exciting and fun. Uh, the truth is, I'm not a hydrologist. I don't really know, understand anything about drilling for water or getting water out of the ground. I happen to be on the board of a East African organization that worked on peace and leadership and was invited to be at a reconciliation meeting after the peace treaty was signed in Sudan. So Sudan had been at war for 55 years. And one of the, it is the country that has the most deaths from war since World War II. It was also kind of the, the place where war moved from killing of soldiers to killing of civilians. And so millions of their civilians were killed. And we happened to be there for a, a peace and reconciliation meeting, stunned by what we saw, a place where there was one surgeon for the entire country of 12 million people, virtually roads that are impassable in the rainy season, 90-something percent illiteracy rate, the highest childbirth, deaths from childbirth of the children and the mother in the world. Just I could go on and on and on. But peace had come. And there was a sense of the people in the room that, hey, hey, this is our chance to do something right away that will make a difference and give our people hope. And I got to lead them in a brainstorming for a week of, and they came up with all kinds of ideas, building hospitals and farms, et cetera. But a little old man on the last day while we were, they were sharing their dreams and goals raised his hand and he said, why are we wasting our time? And of course, that got everybody's attention. He said, why would we do any of these things? Build hospitals, build farms, build churches, build schools when everybody here is dying from dirty water. And so for the first time in my life, I experienced a group of leaders all in the same boat, all agreeing, hey, that's the number one priority. So basically, I just came back. At the time, I was pastoring a church in Dallas, Texas called Irving Bible Church. I came back and just started telling people the story because I kind of had a choice. I could just say, hey, I'm glad that's a priority for you guys and then go, go, go be fruitful or I could do something. And as I shared the story, people started doing things, including putting together a 5K that Maddie ran, ran ran and raising money. And actually that first year raised half a million dollars with the idea of rigs and equipment so that they as locals could actually begin to solve the water problem. So you went through that experience. You shared the story. When did you know that you were going to be the person to take action and really launch the organization? Well, for years, the work was run through the church's books. That way there was no expenses, no staff, et cetera. And it just kept ex growing and expanding. And so in 2012 is when I made the decision to form a full 501c3, a U.S. nonprofit organization, a board of directors, and to actually give myself full time to that. And that's when we began to really begin to look at who is funding this and how do we help others? Schools seem very fascinated, businesses, foundations, et cetera. So that was 2012. So we're in our really our 12th year of being in 501c3. Wow. That is incredible. All right, Steve, can you tell us exactly what Water is Basic does? Yes, I can. And, and it's really quite simple. Our mission now is not only to make sure everybody in South Sudan has access to clean water, but we have learned over our years of service there that it's women who carry the burden of dirty water. Well, of water, period. So it's it's mothers and daughters who walk miles and hours to get water. So we, for example, we were with a young man who was an assistant to a bishop at a church and 
we asked him, hey, where do you get water? And his wife is there. And she says, oh, well, not far, 30 minutes away. And so we started doing the calculations. Okay, 30 minutes walk. Okay. She waits in line, fills up a jerry can, which is uh, about 20 gallons of water and carries it back. That's an hour. How many jerry cans does your family need a day? He said 10. So that's an example of what we're working with. A mom who spends 10 hours a day minimum getting clean water before she can do anything else, before she can care for her kids, cook, clean, run her business, go to school and get educated. We've come to know that the burden of water is on moms and is on their daughters. And so in during COVID, we started to actually pilot a program to train women to actually be repairers of boreholes. Boreholes are these simple holes in the ground that are drilled about 150 feet down. They have some a metal casing and some piping and a pump at the bottom, and there's a hand pump at the top. And that's how people get water. Uh, this is a country without an electrical grid. So it's a country where if you put a solar panel up, it's going to disappear within a few days. So a basic hand pump is the way to get clean water. The problem is, while there have been over 50,000 boreholes drilled by good-meaning NGOs, non-government organizations from Europe and the U.S. over the last 50, 60 years, nobody has planned for the reality of machines break down, pumps break down, chains rust, etc. And so about uh, five years ago, we were driving through a very dangerous territory to, to drill a water well and driving past broken wells on the way. We realized, wait a second, for a fraction of the cost, wells can be repaired and people can have access to clean water. Now the problem is, who's going to do that repair? So we've been training women to be well repair mechanics, and they actually not only go and analyze the well and pull it apart and decide what's wrong with it, they charge fees. They'd run this as an independent business. They charge fees for the repair. They charge fees for the fees for the spare parts. What's exciting about that, Madison, is that last year we actually saw 500 wells get re repaired by these women-led teams, which is a remarkable number. We've never heard of any organization ever getting past 50. And so, by unleashing women in the local community, they're able to respond quickly. They're able to to pull that well apart. They're able to hire local labor to pull it apart and they're able to repair a well within days. That's what we do. Now, what we do in the US is we tell people about what we're doing. We tell people about South Sudan and we ask them to consider giving to that because it does take money to make that operation happen. There has to be spare parts shipped in, et cetera. But we, we make people aware. We ask them to fund. We manage the process, but the work is done by women in South Sudan. So as you go through all that, you're really good at quantifying the number of wells that are there, the work you've done. You started to allude to a little bit of it, but can I get you to expand on probably what are the three biggest unexpected areas of impact you've made since you've been there that you didn't even think were going to be on the radar? Sure. Well, first of all, Brett, I think it's an important thing to, for people to realize is that each one of these women-led teams has a tablet. And they actually have a program on that tablet where they have the GPS location of a well. They put in what was broken, what they repaired, how much fees they charged, who's on the water well committee. And that is always uploaded on a regular basis. In fact, on our website at any given moment, you can see in real time as wells are repaired. You can see the pictures of them, the locations of them, et cetera. That's what you mean by we do a good job of quantifying well repairs. But you know, well repairs mean clean water flows for a village. A village is typically about 50 households with about six people in each household. So about 300 people get access to clean water. And by the way, 
if you don't take time to think about it, there's a lot of things that doesn't happen when you don't have clean water. It's just not a drink of water. It's what do you cook with? What do you clean your clothes with? We've had women say, you know, with dirty water, our bodies itch all the time. Our hair is 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 a mess. By the way, they they don't have a lot of medical facilities, but even a simple clinic needs to be able to wash their their instruments in clean water. So there's so many things that happen with clean water. That is what we do. We repair boreholes. Uh, we train women to repair boreholes and clean water flows within a village. What's been unexpected is three things. One, by employing and training and unleashing women to lead these well repair teams, we are beginning to change culture. So South Sudan is a very patriarchal country. It's a place where, in fact, you guys experience this. I thought maybe uh, Amanda might jump out of her skin, but sometimes you're in a place where women will crawl on their knees to greet you. It's a cultural deal. It's part of, it used to be everybody, now only women do it. So it's a very patriarchal society. Women are thought of as baby producers, period. But now villages are seeing that a woman can actually come in, be trained, understand the science of a borehole, the mechanics of a borehole, know how to fix it and bring life to their entire community. And when clean water comes to a community, their daughters stop walking long distances for water and start going to school. So we've been shocked at how it's transforming the culture, slowly but surely, in the villages as villages see women as bringers of hope. To give you an example, we went to visit one of our well mechanics. And when we showed up in her village, there were several hundred people there. They had butchered a bull, something you only do on a very, very special occasion. And they were all dancing and celebrating and wanted us to stay the day and the night and dance all over. Why? Because we had trained a woman in their community who was bringing life to their village and then bringing a reputation to their village because she was able to go to other villages and bring life too. That's one. Two, I think the other thing that shouldn't be surprising, but was not, you know, we're American. We think fix wells, clean water, that's it. Second is hope. When some, think about that story, a mother spending 10 hours in a day to get clean water before she thinks of anything else. Now she's only spending four hours and she's getting clean water. That gives her the understanding, you know, maybe after all these years of misery, there is potential for things to get fixed, for things to operate well. It creates hope. It creates hope in the future. Now she can spend time with her kids and make sure they're doing their schoolwork. And she has the hope that, my golly, they might actually have an education, something that fewer than 5% of the people had when we started in the entire country. That's two. And then three, I think this coming year is going to be the first elections in South Sudan's history. Now, it's really important that people vote. When, when South Sudan voted to separate from Sudan and become their own nation, they had like a 98% of people came out and voted. They were very focused on the purpose. But if they don't have hope, and if women are busy, neither women will be voting, and people without hope don't need to vote. So when you add those two together, the third thing that's been really powerful for us is to see people start to see a future that can be different. To see that, hey, if we vote for good people, good things can happen. And so I would say those three things have really shocked us, moved us, and changed our thinking. So women, as as a cultural change agent, because of what they're doing, hope, and then the ability to see a future that might be better and therefore participate in the political process. Those three things have been really powerful for us. That's incredible. 
we do such tangible work there. And then to have those big impacts be such intangible things is really fascinating and and probably even more important than the clean water. So yeah, I love that. And yes, I did almost jump out of my skin like 37 times while we were there. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did that was eventually... Just the bugs. <laughs> yes, yes. I did eventually come to appreciate that the women crawling on their knees to serve us was something that they they did to show respect and to be humble. And I've got a thing or two I could learn from them, but that's for another show. <laughs> mm-hmm. We could we could have a two hour show on that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All so, of us. So, Steve, I want to ask you about something that I've observed in you both personally and through Water is Basic, and that's that I've watched you mostly discreetly, sometimes not discreetly, but usually discreetly give women both a space and a voice. And the one that really sticks out to me that was just prolific was Madison, Brett, and I, and several people from the Waters Basic team were there in South Sudan for the graduation of our third class of well mechanics. And there were all these very important men in the community, government, church, and there was a very long agenda. And there was a woman there. We called her mother. I don't remember her actual name. And she was the very first well mechanic. And she got cut from the agenda for time. And so then Steve stands up and and clearly is very respected by all of these men. Steve, you spoke for just a few seconds and then you turned around and yielded your time to mother. It was so quietly powerful. So my question is, what sparks you to do this? Like what in Steve Reese makes you do that? And then two, what do you think the impact is? Well, first of all, when she did speak, I think we were all really glad she did. Mother, it turns out, had been trained as a pump mechanic by the government. Uh, she had to beg and plead and, and cause havoc to be trained. When she showed up for training, they actually gave her a broom and asked her to just keep the place clean. She forced them to train her. And then when they actually just deployed these pump mechanics, which, by the way, they have no tools and no spare parts. So they're trained, but they actually can't do well repair. But when they deployed them, they gave her no place to work. And so she had to really push them to give them give her an opportunity. It's a it's a it's an explanation of patriarchy in this country at at its fullest. Nobody expected mother at the graduation. We had government officials and church leaders and those kinds of things. And they always go on and on. And they always say, we're not going to speak long, which is, a, which is code for sit down and take a nap. But here's this woman who's actually been a pup mechanic and has been cut from the agenda. So just from a practical standpoint, I don't care if it was a man or a woman. Why would this person not be speaking? But it was really disturbing in that we are training women pump mechanics. And here's a hero. Here's the first airline pilot. <laughs> Here's the first, you know, a woman golfer, whatever you want to talk about it. She's in the room and she's not even going to get to speak. So that didn't make any sense to me. But, you know, Amanda, I've always been this way and I can't explain it. I don't, I can't say I got it from an upbringing. I just don't get some of the kooky things we do in the world. I don't get why we wouldn't look at women just like we do men and what do they have to bring to the table? And it, if they have something to bring to the table, they should be at the table just as much as men are. And you know, we all know the experience of seeing news reports and movies, et cetera, where people have to show up in a room full of powerful people and it winds up being a bunch of old white men. And we're trying to figure out how can we be more? Well, I know this, we can be a lot more when women are at the table. It's fascinating right now. 
by the way, when we train women to, to lead pump mechanic teams, we always partner them with a man because in this culture, a woman cannot go for two hours out into the bush by herself. It's just not allowed. But what's been fascinating is to interview the guys and have them say, oh, my goodness, we wouldn't be half the team without my partner. She brings so much to the table. She brings good financial management. She shows up. It's just, it just, it just, to me, women are fascinating. Women are interesting. Women are smart. Women are capable. And I think we're all better when we have all of our gifts unleashed at the table. And in a place like South Sudan, let me go back to what I said at the beginning. Very few roads that can be driven in the winter. No electrical grid. Not that long ago, 90-something percent illiteracy rate. It hasn't improved that much. Many people are still being trained at a school that's under a mango tree. Very few surgeons for an entire country. When one of our, one of our pump mechanics' daughters was ill with a simple illness, we have to fly her to Egypt. So this is a country that is at, it's at, the, it's at the top of being at the bottom. It's you know, for corruption, for poverty, for, for instability, for danger, et cetera. Why wouldn't we want to bring every possible gift and talent to the table? And that means women, that means girls, that means everybody. It's going to take everybody for this nation to get turned around. So that's, that's my heart, to be honest with you. I, I don't know if that really comes across as it should, but I just don't get why we wouldn't, period. And I surely don't understand why you would have a woman pump mechanic who's a hero speak, not speak at a graduation, but be present. Unacceptable. Yeah. And she was amazing. That's amazing. That's the person we heard from all day. Yeah. In fact, we didn't need to hear from anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. It is seen and appreciated. Well, and I just want to say that's why most of our board of directors are women, women like you, Amanda. And you have to have been to South Sudan. But women bring something. They bring a different way of thinking, not because they're women, but because they're human beings. And all of us have something to bring to the table. Why would we keep half of us out of the game? I don't get it. You know, another one of the things I hear about, you say out loud a lot, this is not a subtlety of Steve, but you talk a lot about the sustainability of organizations and almost critical about organizations that start to fix needs that, that can't sustain. Yeah. So I'm, I'm real curious. What have you witnessed around good intentions that have had negative impacts on the communities they're trying to fix? Oh boy. It almost is this whole second episode. I mean, it's just so yeah. intense. <laughs> it, it, it's a loaded question. It is, but I feel like it drives you when everything you talk about an agenda or moving forward or how to move the organization in a positive way. Well, I think part of, part of what drives us is that we do work in such a broken place. So and remember in 2004, I was there because a peace treaty had been signed. In 2011, the people voted to become their own nation. Fantastic, right? 2014, civil war broke out. 2016, between 14 and 16, there was multiple peace treaties signed, blown right through. People suffered in tremendous ways. I, if you want, if anybody out there would like to read a book about the history of South Sudan, that would really, it's a page turner, first of all. It's first raise the flag, the history of South Sudan. It would really blow you away. So in a place where things are so difficult on a, and unpredictable, what happens when organizations come in with good intentions? One, they expect a level of reporting that is not possible from a nation where you had 90% illiteracy. That doesn't mean people are not smart. 
One of our best pump mechanics can't read and write. Between the first session of her training and the second session of her training, she repaired 26 wells. <laughs> Not being smart doesn't mean you can't report well. And so what happens is we look at how we want things done in a highly educated, highly organized, highly technological society and expect that to be done in a place that isn't that. Instead of saying, how can we get what those kinds of results, those kinds of reports in a way that can be done locally? That's, that's one. And so what happens is they constantly say, well, these people can't report well. And so they pull out. We can't, we can't prove the money was used well. We can't prove the projects were done when in reality, the reporting structure has been set up without thinking about the local context. Secondly, when things get dicey and you have not set yourself up for sustainability, meaning everybody that's running the show is a Westerner, guess what happens when things get dicey? Everybody leaves. It's by mandate by many organizations. And I get the safety feature, et cetera, but everything stops. And not only does it stop, but it goes backwards. And so when peace comes again and restarting things up is incredibly difficult. So, you know, we talked about these 50,000 wells or so that have been drilled and nobody had put a plan together to repair them. Good intentions, no sustainability. So we, we just believe that, you know, if everybody who runs the show is a well trained, empowered local, they're not going anywhere when things get dicey. We can get reporting that meets our needs and fits their reality. And also, things don't go backwards. You know, there, there are things that have happened in the last few years that might cause people that are listening to this podcast or even you guys to say, hey, I got to get out of here. And that's reasonable. But you know what? Locals aren't leaving. And so the process continues. The repairs keep going. The reporting keeps going. We don't have to step back. We're actually stepping forward. In fact, we're stepping forward so fast. We're struggling. I told you what we do is raise awareness and money. We're struggling to keep it enough money in the flow to stay up with how excellent the work is on the local level. So yeah, I, I, I think sustainability, st sustainability is all about are we here to empower locals to continue to make the difference or are we here to make a difference that we get credit for? So. Well, so, we don't want to, we don't want any credit. We just want, we just want things to get done. And we, in fact, we'd love it if one day the local said to us, what are you here for? We don't need you anymore. That'd be fantastic. And I think you really touched on what I wanted to know. Are there other lessons you've learned in an organization that has such fast moving social and political turmoil that you didn't know that you apply now when you look towards the future? Hmm. I think one of the key things is. And this is really, it has to do with culture. It also has to do with reality. And that is, you can't do this stuff. And we live in a world where everything can happen electronically. In fact, I had a great fun experience yesterday on a Zoom call with our locals. And I pulled up my screen and I showed them how AI, <laughs> how we could write a letter in seconds and then change it into the local language in seconds and then turn it into a poem in seconds. And I think they, you know, for them, it was like magic. Well, and that's fabulous tool. But the reality is that's not going to work locally. There's no electrical grid. Oftentimes, they don't have access to internet, et cetera. What we have learned is that you have to be together. You have to be in person. You have to be bodily there to know what's going on and to build relationship. And a lot of that time is drinking tea, having a meal. Both Amanda and Madison just, we couldn't stop them from eating the food in, in the local context. It was crazy, you know, it was so <laughs> delicious. 
you know, that's building that kind of trust and relationship is what we want in our own communities and our own businesses here, in our own organizations here. There's all kinds of organizations doing trust building and team building and all that. And then we want to operate just kind of at a distance with our partners overseas. And we've just found that being present, which means a lot of travel, I've made, I think my next trip will be number nine, 90, 90th trip. It's not easy. It's hard on the body. But there are so many things that we learn when we're together that we have not learned via email or Google Meet or Zoom, anything like that. And it's just because culturally things happen when you're together. I think that's a huge part of what's made us, I don't want to sit or use the word successful because we're in a long ways from everybody in South Sudan having access, access to clean water. But we are doing a good work with good people with a good reputation. And I think that matters. I think that was something that really hit me once I was there was being in person with people and really getting to know the foundation where it's at and what it does for people where it's at. With that being said, what's next for Water is Basic? Well, people ask us if we're going to expand this this way of operating, this training of women to repair boreholes, which as far as we know is not happening anywhere else in the world. And if somebody out there knows about it, please let us know. We'd love to connect with them and learn from them. But we, we ha- we're in a country of 13 million people that is still very broken. Uh, we're a long, long ways from having reached the goal of everybody having access to clean water. So we will continue to train more women. We will continue to create more teams. And we will continue to build towards the day when we can say everybody has access to clean water and they have access to repair of their borehole within 24 hours. That's what's next for us. So it's an expansion of what we're doing. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And then I would just like to say, by the way, because people out there might say, how could we help? There's a couple of things. One, we do have a website, watersbasic.org, and there are a couple of videos on there that I think are really helpful. I mentioned earlier a 15-minute video called Rue, uh, which is the life of one 12-year-old girl who's, who's carrying a 42-pound jerry can full of water several times a day. It's 15 minutes long. Schools love it. Share it. Watch it understand what's going on at the local level. There's also like a three minute video there that of the women who are doing what we're doing. We've this women pump mechanics explaining the power of what we're doing right now. But, you know, it's also important that people understand, hey, you've just learned about a country that is the bottom of the top of the bottom, where women are treated as second class citizens, where education is woefully inadequate, where they need hope and they need to be able to see the future as a possibility. So Liking us on Facebook and sharing what we're doing is fantastic. Checking us out on on our website, telling people about it. And, you know, a lot of people like to do fundraisers on their birthday for our work. And there are simple things that people can do. I think we live in a society where we, if we don't have a million followers on Facebook, we don't think we can have an impact. And it's just not true. We can actually take the time we have and the community we have, and we can make people aware of needs and ask them to participate. And it can have a huge impact, not only on the people we're serving, but also on our communities as they actually get to be a part of something special. So that's what's next. (laughs) Can I add one to that, Steve? Sure. As as a board member, I want all those things you talked about, but we also need your money. These parts are expensive. The trainings are expensive. And for pennies, you guys at Water is Basic make a huge impact. So as you're perusing, if if money is easier to give than your time, we'll gladly take it. That's right. You can give that at watersbasic.org. I will, we, we, myself, Amanda as a board member, 
would be glad to talk to you. And we feel very confident that we are a very valuable investment of your resources. We know where it's going. We're audited annually. So are our locals. We report, as we said, in real time as well repairs are done. We believe you investing in something that you will be proud of for a long time. So last thing, if you've been back and forth 90 times, what you Mm -hmm. do is exhausting. What you see is exhausting and takes a toll. You lead people there all the time, and that takes a toll to be in two worlds between their first experience and your 90th. Mm -hmm. How do you build back into yourself personally to refresh and keep the motivation? And then how do you do the same thing for your team Hmm. here and your team there? Well, I think, first of all, by being connected. So when we are there, we, we, we go and we hang out in people's homes, which are simple tukuls, which is a local term for a mud hut, and eat meals there and take tea there and sit under the stars, which are fabulous in a place with an electrical grid, by the way. If, you, if, you're, if you're a traveler who's trying to find the, dark, the best sp- night sky in the world, we can bring you there in South Sudan at any time. So we, I think being with the people on a regular basis and staying in touch with them and staying in touch with their day-to-day lives helps build into our hearts. And then we, we just realized that, it, you know, we can't solve this problem. I, we, we, we do not state we are solving the world water crisis. It's not true. We don't even know if we're solving the water crisis in South Sudan. We are doing good work with good people, and it makes a difference every day in the lives of the people who have access to clean water, as you all have just heard. So we just give ourselves the space to breathe, to not work... 14 hours a day thinking we're going to, you know, we've got a date and we're going to have solved this problem. Our, I work with Carrie, who lives in Atlanta, who's a mom, and Abby, who lives in Denver, who's a mom. They are able to fit their work in around their life schedule. They're able to take the space they need to relax, to recover, to think, to meditate. We just think that this is a long-term process. Even though the people we serve have been traumatized in significant ways, Working overworking isn't a way to get this goal accomplished. It's working healthily. And so people go to yoga, you know, but there's a lot you could look up when it comes to people who have secondhand trauma, massages, taking long walks, et cetera. We encourage that on a regular basis for all of our team so that we can stay in the game. You said you liked hiking. I do like hiking. I would not call what you do hiking. That is extreme hiking. Well, it would it might be to you. <laughs> but but when somebody's hiking the Appalachian Trail or something like that, they probably think what we're doing is 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 not extreme. But yes, uh, all th- turns out all three of us like to hike. And I know Abby and her husband have done hiking vacations. My wife and I have. I know Carrie likes to hike as well. And I think getting out in nature, nature reminds us that the world is real and big and precious. And even in South Sudan, getting out in nature has been fascinating. It's, you know, when you go there in the dry season, it seems like everything's dead. One of the great joys of mine was watching everybody pull their beds out into the night to sleep. And I'm like, I don't want to sleep out here in the night. I'm going to be eaten alive. Well, it turns out in the dry season, nothing's alive, including bugs. But to sit there on your bed and look at a sky with all these mothers laying around with their ch- children and families as we sleep outside is, is, is remarkable. Nature reminds us that the world is big and that we're interconnected. And it's been really helpful for me. And I think the rest of our team. All right, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all that you do for the community, both here and in South Sudan and around the world. We appreciate 
all the efforts and the impact you leave a lasting legacy. Well, I want to thank you guys for having me on. As I said earlier, not only do we work in a difficult place, but we want people to know about it. And we can't, you know, you guys are a living example of what we're asking people to do. You've used your resource, your time to share a story. So thank you for doing that. We, we're grateful. And I promise you, the, the women of South Sudan are very grateful. Yeah. And Madison, thanks for co-hosting today and being brave enough to go with your crazy parents and friends, Steve, to one of the most dangerous places in the world to attempt to help them make it a better place. Can't wait to go back. Good. Thank you all for listening and letting us share the story of Water is Basic with you. It's clearly something our family is passionate about, and hopefully you got a glimpse into the impact of Water is Basic. I so appreciate Steve's nimble and common sense approach to building and repairing wells, but also the larger ripple effects for women, hope, and even the political landscape there. If you want to learn more, find them at waterisbasic.org.